No one leaves home unless home is the mouth of a shark. You only run for the border when you see the whole city running as well. You have to understand that no one puts their children in a boat unless the water is safer than the land. An excerpt from Home by Warson Shire. Welcome back to Tesserai. I'm Bob. And I'm Steve. And join us as we explore the Christian walk in light of the ways it's been dismantled. In our inaugural season, we touched a bit on the history and legacy of the African-American church, as well as some characteristics of the Asian-American church. While there's so much more to be discussed and explored within each, we've started our exploration of the Latino-American church and experience and are so privileged to have with us Brenda Cuellar today. Brenda is already making Tesserai history as she is our first guest that neither Bob or I have had the privilege of meeting in person before. But a mutual friend connected us. We're so excited and thankful for it. And today's episode will give us a glimpse into Brenda's church experience as well as her experience working at the southern border and so much more. Currently, Brenda works at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago as the Assistant Dean of International Students. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Brenda, tell us a little bit about yourself. I'd love to. Thank you so much, Bob and Steve, for that introduction. I appreciate it. And I feel so honored to be the first person that you are interviewing without getting to know beforehand. Um, so my name is Brenda. I'm originally from Michigan. My parents are both from Mexico, so I'm Mexican-American. I've lived in Chicago for about three years now, serving at Moody, and I absolutely love the city. Um, in my free time, I love to explore different neighborhoods and do photography, um, and so I really enjoy being here in the city. For both my undergrad and my grad, I studied political science and international studies, and most of my research was focused on immigration. So I'm extremely passionate about immigration, especially having parents who are immigrants and a lot of friends and family members. Um, Post-graduation, I did a lot of work with refugees and with migrants. And uh, yeah, that's a little bit about myself. Brenda, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about what your church experience has been about. Uh, on previous episodes in Tesserai, we, we focus a lot on uh, our own church experiences, and but just, I think, the uppercase C church as well, and try to get an idea for how this has influenced and brought us to where we are today. You know, how has this influenced um, so much of your theological perspective, which I'm so excited to get to. So just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about uh, maybe your own um, conversion experience, but also uh, just your experience in church. Yeah, I would love to share with you about my experience at church. So I grew up in the church. My parents um, started going to church when I was younger. We went to a uh, Baptist church and it was all in Spanish, an immigrant church. And uh, yeah, so I grew up in the church, but really didn't make faith my own until I was 17 years old. There was an older pastor who was an immigrant and he used to come over to my parents' house and just share the gospel with us. And it was then when I started asking myself the deeper questions of life, like what's the point of living? What am I here for? And so it was such perfect timing that God would bring this man to our house to explore those questions. Um, then after that, I actually attended Hope College for my undergrad, and I grew up in a very small town, wasn't really exposed to a lot of cultures outside of my own, except the white culture. And, and so I think it was college that really opened up my eyes. I was involved with Hope for the Nations, an international Christian fellowship, and lived in an incredible dorm. It was an international dorm. Um, and, and so I think being a part of those communities really opened up my eyes to the global church. And that's when I became extremely passionate about immigrants and refugees and international students. Um, and the Lord really did a lot of great work in my heart and in my life. And, um, and I really started engaging more with, with those global topics. So you mentioned that you got to Hope. 
And I'm really interested in how did church change up? How did your church experience change from when you were growing up with your parents um, and had this amazing minister come into your home and sharing the gospel with you versus when you get to college in this new place and since? Kind of what, what's, what's changed? What's, what's similar? What's different? That's a great question. And honestly, it's been a very long journey and it's still ever changing. So my church when I was in high school did overlap a little bit when I was in college. Um, but then I started going to a white church. It was Reformed Baptist Church. Um, I think I was just used to the Baptist denomination. And so naturally I was drawn to that. Um, but I think because I was living in an international dorm, I was already in a more collective culture. And so I, I kind of got that, that comfort there. Um, and so I think I, I ended up switching to a white church and I could definitely notice some major differences. Um, I think just coming from a collective culture, there's this focus on community and, and as opposed to an um, individualistic culture where there's more focus on the individual. So I think that was probably the biggest difference for me. And I kind of grappled with that for, for some time, but didn't really understand it until my senior year when I started exploring more topics about race. Um, and then it kind of was affirmed later on. So post-graduation from Pope, I moved to Nashville and I was um, at an incredible church. I, I loved it. It was very diverse, multi-ethnic, multicultural. And the pastor was African-American. And just, I remember for the first time hearing about race in the pulpit and I was just astounded. And I thought, wow, mm -hmm. this is, this is great. I feel like I, I'm seen and I belong. Um, but that was a very, that was temporary. It was only for a summer. Um, and then I moved back to Michigan and attended a Latino church. Um, and, and it was really great. But then I, I moved again to the U.S.-Mexico border and also attended a Mexican church there. Um, and so, again, the, I think the main piece for me was just that difference between collectivism and individualism. And, I, and as a minority, I think I felt just more seen and more heard when issues of immigration or race or you know, global issues were addressed. Um, because there's just so much more in this world. And, and I think it just wasn't addressed as much in the white churches that I attended. From where you sat in the pews, like in the white church, for example, what, what were there factors in the leadership or in the philosophy of ministry that, you know, from kind of a user end experience that you could tell that maybe kept those issues from being addressed? Whereas in a, in some of the other churches, it was more easily addressed from the pulpit or as a, um, you know, a formal church position? Were there, was there anything that uh, that you noticed? Was it purely just the individualism or were there other factors at, at play too? Well, the church was predominantly white. I was the only Latina in the church. And so I think when the congregation looks the same and there aren't other minority populations, those issues that minorities are facing aren't really identified in the church. And so they don't really know the realities that others are facing. So for example, the immigrant churches I was at, um, if someone was deported, the whole church would feel that and it was, mm -hmm. and they would hurt for that. Whereas at the white church, they're just, because minorities weren't there, um, then you couldn't really address any of those issues. Does that make sense? And I think it's having that white privilege or having, um, I guess people in your same social class, you don't really have those same issues that other churches would have that are immigrant churches, for example. And I think for me too, is no one in the leadership looked like me, no one else looked like me. And so I, I just kind of felt like you were the outcast often. And I remember I have an incredible mentor, mentors from those churches who were so just incredible godly woman who really helped me in my walk with the Lord and would try so hard to understand my perspective. And I appreciated that. Um, and I think there's so much beauty with being bicultural and bilingual 
Um, and at the same time, it's hard because when you enter this monoculture with the board monolingual, they, you, they kind of just miss that. They don't have that full understanding that you have, if that makes sense. Hmm. Did the, uh, the more multicultural or multi-ethnic churches that you were a part of, um, like, like the one in Tennessee, I think you said Tennessee, is that right? Uh, did that, did you felt like understood or, you know, as much as being in a Latino church or, um, was there just more empathy? Like what, t- talk to me a little bit about that versus the, the white church and kind of being known. Yeah, that's a great question. I think empathy is so important when someone's able to feel and understand, maybe not fully understand, but at least they're trying to understand that makes a world of a difference. I think the church in Nashville was so unique in that we had a black pastor and that I was doing refugee work at that time. And so my job was to bridge the refugee community with the church and people Mm -hmm. were so invested with the refugee community. They wanted to be involved. And so there was this automatic kind of win. I mean, I I didn't have to explain my culture. I didn't have to explain anything. I didn't have to explain the sufferings of refugees. People already understood it. And it was this this culture of, of understanding, even though everyone just came from different backgrounds. Um, and so I think that cultural competency was there, which is a big key or big piece to understanding each other. Um, and so, yeah, I think just having diverse leadership and people who are willing to enter the suffering of the world and walk alongside the body of Christ is just extremely important. Oh, that's great. That's helpful. Um, I think the perennial struggle for so many um, white evangelical churches who are concerned about these issues, you know, is, um, there's just this kind of, the way you described it is there was almost this invisibility to the suffering or to the struggle or to the issues that, you know, you were sensitive to. And, um, I think whether for a lack of empathy or just a lack of, of knowledge, whatever, so many white evangelical spaces do really struggle, um, to branch out of that monoculture. I know that the church that I pastor, I mean, I, we struggle, uh, to do that. And those are some of the conversations we're having right now. Um, so it's, it's helpful to hear from your varied experiences. Um, maybe we could pivot it for a minute. Um, I think you, you teach a class at Moody, right? On immigration. Yeah, I do. I teach teach a class called the church and immigration. Church and immigration. Awesome. Can you tell us a little bit about, um, about that? What do you teach? What do you, what's the focus? Why is it important? Yeah, so I teach a class called the Church and Immigration at Moody Bible Institute every fall semester. Last year was my first time, um, and I also hopefully will lead a trip to the U.S.-Mexico border where I did ministry for a year. Um, I'm hoping to take a group of Moody students to go and explore the issues of immigration. Um, it's a really powerful class. We um, have four main topics. The first one is um, the theology of immigration, and so we talk about what does Scripture say about immigration? Um, what does God talk to us about immigration, what does he say, what does he want us to understand, um, and what invitation is he giving us to respond to this crisis. And then the second topic is the immigration um, in the United States, and so what does that look like, um, what are the demographics, and what are immigration policies like, what is the history of immigration policy, and then we take it to a global level and we explore the refugee crisis, we talk about women and trauma, we talk about empathy and advocacy and justice and peacemaking. We cover a wide variety of topics. And then we finally end it on talking about the missiological approaches to empower the church and how we can empower the local church to serve immigrants and refugees and provide them with the resources to do it well. Wow. 
That sounds incredible. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay. I'm a few... Yes. I was, I was about to ask. I'm like, I'm not a moody student, but what would, it, what would that look like <laughs> for me to audit that? That's amazing. Steve's trying to get into your class for free here. Uh, yeah, we just want to start, you know, just like the first couple of weeks are free, you know, so I just want to <laughs> get a good feel and make sure I can make sure I can hold my weight in the class. <laughs> uh, yes. So I, I am very interested. I am very interested in this course. So could you recap just some, maybe a little bit about each of those four points? Um, you know, not asking you to give us the whole class. I know we, if we want it, we should take the class for sure. But tell us a little bit about um, each of those four positions. I think for me, I'm, I'm really interested on that, uh, on all of them. But the second one is sticking out to me a lot because I'm thinking of how this is automatically jettisoned into a political conversation so or, and, and a position without even understanding it. I would venture to say the public figures, the people that we get our news from, uh, the everyday opinion that we have are probably informed by people who haven't even spent time at the border, who have maybe spent a lot of time trying to understand the history of immigration and uh, and our political positions before we go off spewing them. So I'm wondering if you could just maybe yeah give us a backdrop to this course, um, and also what are we missing about the immigration conversation from someone who actually knows a bit more? Yeah, great question, Steve. Thank you for asking that. Yeah, so I'll kind of give you a run through and then kind of share some ideas that I have about what's missing. I think the most important thing about this course is that we shift the conversation from conversation from a political one, social one, economic one, to a biblical one, to one focused mm. on seeing immigration through the lens of faith. And so I think that's what I want students to understand. I think a lot of times this can sound scary whenever you talk about immigration, people always, you know, they have so many preconceived notions and all these ideas of what they see on the media, on the wall, um, criminals, etc. Um, and so I, I want to debunk all of those myths and then just reorient and have students um, really seek out what it is that God wants us to know about immigrants and see his big, huge heart for it. And so we first start with the theology of immigration, and we talk about how each and every single immigrant is made in the image of God. And it's so important to start there. Um, we use three books for the class and um, the Bibles and Borders by Dr. Danny Carroll, who's also a Wheaton. Um, it's a phenomenal book. He's actually spoken at our class, and I just really admire him and his research that he's done. Um, and I think he really sets the stage for helping us understand immigration through a biblical lens. And so when we see an immigrant through the image of, um, as an image bearer of God, it completely changes everything. Um, no longer are we dehumanizing them, but we see them as people who, you know, who God has a purpose for and who are here um, traveling for a reason. And so that language piece really matters. Um, and so we have students kind of, we go through scripture and we um, look at all the biblical passages of people on the move. And so I have students do an exercise and, and it takes us so long because everyone is literally on the move from Adam and Eve to Abraham and Sarah, Moses, Joseph, he was human traffic, you know, forced migration, um, slave, which is, a, you know, for me and my perspective, it's just the worst form of sin out there. And the disciples and Jesus who had, you know, who did the most ultimate migration, um, leaving heaven to come to earth and was born as a refugee. Mm. John the Baptist. I mean, it just keeps going on and on and on. And so we explore these characters and um, and we look at their, their experience. And a lot of times they end up being very vulnerable. And that's still the case today. Um, and migration has happened from the beginning of time and it's going to continue to happen. And so um, going on with kind of this idea of, um, of the theology of immigration, 
um, the word, the Hebrew word for stranger, sojourner, or immigrant is the word ger, and it's in scripture at least 80 times in the Old Testament. And so it's just so prevalent in the Bible, and it's always in the context of welcoming the stranger, welcoming the foreigner, treating the foreigner like they're your own. Um, and how they're a blessing. And so it really shifts the conversation that we typically have here in the U.S. as immigrants kind of being a threat. And it changes it into people who deserve to be cared for and who should also have a Sabbath, who also work really hard, who are part of the greater society. Um, and so that's basically the first section that we cover. Um, second section is a bit more intense um, because we do talk about immigration policy in the U.S. And the reality is it's not pretty. It's not kind it's actually deadly um hmm. and if you look at our history of immigration policy i won't go through all of them but it's it's it excludes certain populations and typically they're minority populations or brown populations and there's this theme of racism in our policy and if you look to see where immigration is housed in our immigration system it's under the department of homeland security as if it's a threat hmm. um and so what we do is we um, talk about the history of immigration. I have um, a friend of mine named Kate Coyman who's done a lot of extensive research and advocacy on immigration. And then my friend um, who's an immigration lawyer, Anne Hassa, she also talks about our current immigration policies um, and how they impact um, those who are more vulnerable. Um, so when I lived on the U.S.-Mexico border, I learned that there have been over 7,000 deaths on the U.S.-Mexico border because of policies that are currently in place. Um, and people continue to die trying to cross um, and so we talk about the sanctuary movement, um, which is a movement started by John Fife, and he's a wonderful man, probably someone who I just admire the most in this world. And he's actually spoken in our class, and he served on the board that I volunteered with. And so basically in the 80s, there was an influx of migrants from Central America who were fleeing because of the civil wars. And so where they were... Um, they arrived in the U.S.-Mexico border, and a lot of them were deported and then ended up dying because they were just trying to flee the violence. And so uh. John Fife started this incredible movement called the Sanctuary Movement, which still happens today. We have some sanctuary churches in Chicago all over the U.S. that have really saved lives. Um, and so we explore this movement, and we have a conversation with John Fife, and we say, you know, what motivated you to start this movement? How did your faith impact that? And his answers are just remarkable and, and so wonderful. And I can talk about this for hours. Um, he actually has a podcast that I recommend um, that I actually have my students listen to. Um, and so the idea of this is to kind of tie in politics with faith and have our faith influence our politics, not the other way around. And so I think this section does a good job of that. And we talk about the global refugee crisis, and um, there are over 80 million people for, um, forcibly displaced worldwide. Um, and so we have, um, we use the incredible book by George and Adani, I hope I'm not butchering her name. Um, I actually just met George for the first time a few weeks ago, wonderful man, and the book is called Refugee Diaspora. And he's such a great job of talking about how refugees um, are coming into this world and missions are coming to us. I mean, seldom do we, I mean, I'm not saying let's not go out and travel, let's, let's please continue to do that and share the gospel, but it's incredible how God is really using um, the refugee crisis to bring people to know him. Um, and so he uses different case studies to talk about um, refugee crisis worldwide and how churches are stepping in and filling that gap and meeting the needs of refugees and how refugees are coming with this incredible gift of faith. I mean, they've just experienced so much hardship and so much suffering. 
and I have experienced this with, especially with the migrants that I've interacted with on the U.S.-Mexico border, their faith is just unlike any that I've ever seen. It's so real. And I think suffering does that to you. You develop this intimacy with the Lord and this closeness that's so rare. Mm. Um, I remember once I was interviewing this woman on the U.S.-Mexico border. I would, I would interview migrants and blog their stories online. And um, and, it, and it was a really hard time for me because I was, I was really having a hard time understanding suffering and my relationship with God and how can God allow this so, so much suffering in this world to happen. Uh, and and I would just see the suffering every single day with the migrants that were deported. And it was through their faith that I was encouraged so much because it was them. They had so much faith that they would be able to be reunited with their families, that they wouldn't be in poverty anymore, that their family would be healed. And um, this one woman in particular, I just remember her faith stood out to me so much. And she said she spent about five days up in the desert. She was so cold and was scared that she was going to die. And she was praying to God. And she's like, God, please just give me your warmthness, just your warmth. And she all of a sudden felt this warmth on her that she's never experienced before. And it was just a sweet story. I thought, wow, I mean, that's just not something that I hear in the Baptist church. You know, it's just this faith yeah, that's just so yeah. intimate and so sweet. And I just was so encouraged constantly by the stories of these migrants. Um, and then lastly, wow. we talk about the missiological approaches to empower the church. And um, we focus in on Chicago and talk about the undocumented populations here in Chicago. Um, hopefully, uh, things will calm down a little bit more with COVID. We're hoping to do trips to Little Village and to Pilsen. We have Paco Amador and his beautiful wife, Silva, talk to our students about their church, um, new life in Little Village. And um, we talk about Exodus World Service, which is an organization that I volunteer with, and they do refugee resettlement. And we just like to see the incredible opportunities that we have in Chicago alone. Um, and then just put everything that we've learned into practice. So you just received a free course. <laughs> and that's, that's the great. answer. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's, that, and it's a full semester course, like 16 weeks. Right. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's We're amazing. We're that up with a trip to the U.S.-Mexico border where we actually go for a week and we uh, Mark Adams and Hokabet Gallegos are the directors of the of the ministry that I had worked for. Phenomenal people. Honestly, when I think of people who truly lived out the faith, I think of them because they literally live right on the wall on the Mexico side. And so we go and students um, will hopefully learn about um, the immigration crisis. And we're next to the wall. So we talk about the wall and we see a cemetery where people who died on the border who are unidentified their bodies are there in the cemetery we talk with border patrol agents nonprofit leaders um the church and we just explore immigration we hear all these topics all these perspectives that really conflict with each other people who are extremely conservative people who are extremely liberal and then we open scripture at the end of the day and we just discuss and we um we just process everything that we've learned so it's a really powerful trip do your students tend to, uh, is this a required course or is it, is it like an elective one? It's an elective. So do you, do you end up with a, an array of positions on immigration with, among your students or do you tend to have kind of a more similar crowd? Sure. That's a great question. Last year was my first time teaching the class and, and it was a smaller course. And I think when you sign up for a class like this, it's because you're open and you want to learn more. So there's mm-hmm. this level of openness. Um, but students definitely do have preconceived notions about immigration, especially if they've grown up in white evangelical circles, which is a big part of the Moody culture. Um, and I think what's so powerful about this class is I have speakers almost every other week. And we have a panel of refugees. And we have um, John Fife, who is the founder of a sanctuary movement, and Mark Adams and 
um, immigration lawyers and immigrants in general and pastors and advocates. And so I think when you hear it from them, it just completely changes everything. I mean, you, you can't, I guess, argue with someone's experience. And so I, I've seen, and I remember reading the reflection papers at the very end, just being astounded with just what this course has done to people who are very close to the topic of immigration because of their families or because of what they've heard in the media. Um, so it was really encouraging for me and, and really gave me so much, um, I guess, more of a drive to teach this class again and to continue teaching it because I see the difference that it does make especially when it comes to shifting the conversation from a political one to one um, to a biblical one. So I, I want to build on that and poke at that a little bit um, because like how, how have you come to your convictions? Because I think someone like, uh, so this is sort of a meta question, I suppose, but um, someone like Wayne Grudem, is going to say there's a biblical ethical argument for building a wall, right? He is, he's arguing there's a biblical case for it. And, and I've interacted with others who have, have said that. Um, but, you know, but on the other side of that, you're saying um, here's a biblical view of immigration and you haven't really outlined any policy points or anything, but certainly a much more like empathetic and sympathetic perspective. So, so like we can look at, immigration is being biblical, but isn't it also inherently political? Isn't there a sense in which like our policy is always going to have a level of pragmatism to it? Or, you know, I mean, how do you, how do you come to your own like policy conclusions from the Bible, especially when there's other Christians who are arguing from the Bible for varying conclusions? Wow. That's a very great question. (laughs) A difficult (laughs) one. And and if the well, that's why we have you here to answer all of the hard questions. So sure, I'm happy to answer. And honestly, I've just done so many presentations and have talked to people from all over the world with varying convictions. And, and I think that's why I'm so passionate about this topic and why I'm so passionate about God and pointing out the scripture passages and talking about them and talking to Border Patrol agents who are extremely against immigration, right? And then talking to immigrants themselves who are so convinced, right? And so I think... It's hard for me because immigration impacts me directly. My parents came from Mexico. In my high school, some of my friends were deported years later. And my I was teaching a, um, a class when I was living in Holland, Michigan. And um, some of my students' parents were deported. And so I think I'm a naturally empathetic person. And I think because Jesus himself was a refugee and was an immigrant, I am so confident in my convictions. And I am a Latina female, and so there is these power dynamics. And so when there is a white male who is speaking against immigration, I challenge that and I say, where do you get your facts from? Have you been to the U.S.-Mexico border? What do your communities look like? What is your socioeconomic status? Have Do you have friends who are different than you? Are you familiar with... I, I ask them specific questions if they say things that I get a question I get often is, why don't they just come the right way? And I ask them, what is the right way? Mm. Can you please tell me what the right way is? And then I'll answer that question. And there is no right way. I mean, our immigration system is so outdated. And so I think when it happens, when I'm having a conversation with someone who is anti-immigrant, who is for building the wall, I ask those questions to see how knowledgeable they are about immigration. Do they know those facts? And if they want to get political, I will go there, political science major, undergrad and grad, and I will talk about those facts, right, and those policies. And and I think, you know, the U.S. being an individualistic culture has a lot to do with that, this pragmatism that you're talking about. Um, and I think 
it just kind of goes counter what Jesus talked about, you know, him coming from a collective culture. And I remember in my class, Mark Adams, a director of Frontera de Cristo, um, a student asked him this very similar question saying, but there are so many people coming. We don't have enough resources. I mean, we need a wall. What's going to happen? And Mark's answer was just so simple. And he said, you know, Jesus fed the thousands two times. And he just said, it was so simple. He said, you know, Matthew 14, um, the disciples were saying, it's getting late. They can feed themselves. And he says, no, um, they don't need to go away. Let's feed them. And he made bread in fish out of nothing, right? I mean, he multiplied that. And there was this, this faith in this focus on community, not on self. And so I think that's kind of the arguments that I use is challenging those, um, I guess, that individualism and, and asking you're asking us, why is it that we are so against people coming here? Why is it that we want this wall to be up? What are we scared of? You know, and um, something that I, that I talk about often is this idea of um, the group threat theory. I don't know if you're familiar with this sociology theory or sociological theory. And it basically talks about um, this theory where you see other people as a threat for scarce resources or for political power. And so if someone who doesn't look like you is growing in numbers and you're nervous that you're going to lose what you have. Um, and so what is it that we're focusing on? Is it economic you know, power that we want? Um, do we want to continue living our, our comfortable lives at the expense of other people? Um, and on the other side of that is the contact theory. And it's the more interaction you have with immigrants, the less tension, the less fear there are. Right. And so that's why I ask people who are you typically anti-immigrant, how many immigrant people do you know? Have you gotten to know them? Because that will completely change the narrative. Um, and John Fife, the founder of the Sanctuary Movement, um, for my thesis, I, I um, interviewed different pastors and different leaders in the churches. And I said, what do you do to convince your audience to welcome the stranger? And it was so fascinating. And John's answer was, I mean, he's a wise guy. And his answer was so simple. It said, whenever I see someone who's anti-immigrant, I say, hey, you need to have lunch with this guy. Go have lunch with him. And that completely changed everything because there's this aspect of humanizing. Um, so anyways, that's kind of my very long answer to your short question. No, it's um, so, so good. And um, I mean, that's how that, that see, I, I appreciate that because so much of the discourse is flat, right? I mean, it's so binary and it's flat. It's my team and your team. Um, and it, I, I, I really appreciate hearing how you come to that or what's influenced your thinking and also how others are seeking to drive the conversation in a constructive way. Cause we need to have thick conversations about things like immigration that that do humanize, um, you know, the quote other, um, especially in white evangelical circles, um, and, and that lift it out of just, well, this is a red or a blue thing, you know, you're, uh, you're, you're favoring this. So that must make you X, Y, or Z. Um, so, you know, that was kind of what motivated the question was thinking about the, the what and the why underneath it. So, yeah, I appreciate that. That's great. Thank you. Mm -hmm. That relational piece is really interesting to me. I think, um, I think I feel that way uh, regarding uh, so many different conversations on race. You know, uh, mm -hmm. in, in general, whether um, here at, at, at the college or um, or my alma mater, wherever, where you're like have some ha have an experience with someone that you ha already have this opinion about. You know, um, and so that's so powerful. Uh, it is interesting from a I'm grappling with this idea of like, so is it experience that just, it takes experience in order for you to, 
in order for you to do like what the Lord wants you to do. Like, and I guess in a way, <laughs> that's just kind of raw thinking of it. it. It seems like, so what happens when you, what if you don't get to have that experience? What if you're in a very homogenous uh, area, you know, you don't get to be exposed to that naturally. Will you really read the Bible? Maybe know it front to back, know what it says, but can't do what it means. Because I do feel like there are Christians who, I'm not saying like everyone just walks around knowing the Bible, but I don't think that, I think there are significant it's an significant part of the population, part of the Christian population that would say hearing language about the sojourner and the stranger is not a new like concept for them in of itself. Like they know the Bible has something to say about that, you know, so they'd be like, whoa, sojourner is using the Bible. Like they might not say that, but it's application into this sphere, into their current reality. Like there's that disconnection. And so can that connection really only be made with like relationships and experience? Like you know, that also, I think, concerns me a little bit because it just seems so taxing on 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 those who are like kind of tasked with showing you the other side, you know, like have a conversation with me so that your eyes are open and it's beautiful and I want to be a part of it. And I've been in those conversations before, but it also does sometimes put a lot of pressure, I think, uh, an inordinate amount of pressure on people of color and Christians of color to like step into those spaces. And now I'm having to educate um, now having to show you a perspective so that you know, so that you know that this is a thing, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I definitely relate to that last piece, especially. I think that's why friendships and people who understand you are so important. Um, yeah, that's a good question, Steve. And and to be honest, I would say that's the majority of people who I think in my experience are anti-immigrant are people who are in those homogenous areas, right? Who just haven't had that experience. And um, and I think, but I, at the same time, I've also had friends who do come from those backgrounds who are so open. And I, and mm -hmm. one of those friends came with me to the U.S.-Mexico border and I just saw her eyes just open and it was incredible. And so I think just this, I think having openness and empathy really make a difference. And I bet if we had so much empathy, our policies would just look so different. If we put ourselves in other people's shoes, it would just be different. And so... I think just having this um, eagerness to learn, willingness to research and, and pray and ask God, Lord, what is it that you're saying about this? And then examining our hearts, like scripture tells us over and over again, why is it that I believe this about this person? Why do I believe that this policy is a good one? Um, and then kind of checking ourselves, like what privileges do we have and how does that privilege influence how we view other people? And so yeah. I don't want to say there's no hope for someone who doesn't understand and because a lot of my students that come from those backgrounds and they understood, but I think it's sure. having this level of openness. And for me, I think as a minority who talks about these, talks about issues, race and immigration constantly, I, I can't get away from it. It's something I'm so passionate about and it is taxing and it's exhausting. So having allies is so important. I know. I know what you're thinking. Things were just getting good, but don't worry. Our conversation on immigration is far from over. So join us next week as we continue our conversation with Brenda. And in the meantime, tell us what you thought of episode one of this series. Until next time, this has been Tesseride.